I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying from Merrick. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hi, hi, Ologites. Hi, Allie Ward here. It's me. So first off, I want to apologize to the many thousands of you who think that this episode is about gelato because it's just straight up not. It's not about gelato at all. Gelotos in Greek means laughter. Gelare in Latin means to freeze or congeal. Two different things in origins, but that doesn't mean that you can't eat gelato while you're listening. I can't see you. You can gnaw on a ham. You can lick your tile grout listening to this. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just glad you're here. Hey. Okay, let's get creepy first, shall we? Your reviews help ologies stay up kicking ass in the science charts, and I appreciate them so much. It's so great to look at the science charts and see ologies up there in like the top 25. Just little old us making this podcast, guys. Um, also, I frequently write and research all alone, uh, wearing no pants and your reviews make my day. I read every single one. Each week, I like to read you one that just tickled me. More on tickling later. God's getting creepier and creepier every second. So I get others drunk. Okay. Says, thank you, Allie Ward, for showing the world that these usually academic nerds are fun, funny, interesting, besides smart. This show makes me wish I was an ologist so that Allie would ask me dumb questions. Hey, Allie, if you ever need to chat with a distiller, I will happily meet you in the lobby of an airport hotel. Actually, I think that there are some ologies related to distillery, so holler. So rate and review. I see all of your names and I think, hey, thanks, name. So spread the word. You can tell a friend or two about the show. You can become a patron on Patreon. Uh, you can hit up ologiesmerch.com if you ever want to wear a logical love on your human body. So on to the episode. Now, gelatology was a huge factor in my developing an obsession with ologies. I remember seeing it on this big list of like various different fields of study. It was wedged between like gastrology, which is the stomach, and I think gemology, which was episode five. Go listen, y'all. But I saw the study of laughter and I was like, who does that? Who are these people? What are their lives? Who are they? So I started researching and reaching out for people to interview. And last year, I started looking. And this ologist was at the top of my list. And I got in touch with the university. I explained that this was a podcast. It didn't exist yet, but it would. And I promised I'm not a terrorist or anything. And could I come and meet him? And after a year of email tag, a year, you guys, a year, I was in my car on my way to Loma Linda, California, which is a dusty academic town in the Inland Empire. And I was ushered to a basement lab for an interview. Now, shockingly and hilariously, this gelatologist may be one of the most serious subjects I've ever sat down with, which I love. I know this is an episode about humor, but it gets intense and kind of dark, but also inspiring. This is like not a party clown in a lab coat. He is not the Michael Scott equivalent of your family physician. This ologist is all business. In his words, he says he's the guy who's serious about laughter, and he is. It's wonderful. In the last few episodes of Ologies, we heard from a herpetologist who was telling me all about snake butts, and an ichthyologist who was musing about fish 
getting it on, and they were both hilarious. And then this episode about laughter is one of the more factual ones. Which is great. This chat was surprising in a lot of ways. Uh, he's an immunologist, a psychologist, and because his life's work is about how laughter affects the endocrine and immune system, he is a gelatologist. Now, in this episode, you'll learn why things are funnier in a packed theater, how a joke works broadly, uh, why stress is maybe literally killing you, no big deal, and some interesting science behind roast jokes. So, in the doc's words, make time to get off your work merry-go-round for a bit and gorge on some gelatology with Dr. Lee Burke. I'll get some levels on you. One, two, three, four, five. How long have you been at this university? <laughs> I started in 1971. What? Here? Yes. Wow. 1971. 47 years, you guys. 47 years. He started in laboratory medicine and immunology. He was working on transplants for infants. And he holds degrees in psychology, sociology, clinical laboratory science, uh, master's, and a PhD in clinical preventative care. So the things you can do to stop from getting sick in the first place, other than just washing your hands obsessively. But my uh, to, be, um, to be involved in psychoneuroimmunology, you have to be very eclectic. So how many degrees do you have? One, two, three. <laughs> I'll give you a minute. Five. Five degrees. Yeah. Um, so. So the five degrees. So uh, I started in psychology. I was going to go into clinical psych, and I decided, nah, it doesn't have all the answers because there's more to um, uh, wellness or staying well, which was my passion, than uh, just the, the psychological theoretical component. So mm -hmm. that's why I decided to step into the. Um, the heavier sciences, if you please. And now in 1971, I imagine that science didn't necessarily look at the mind and the body as super connected, or did they? No, uh, there, there was no real appreciation for mind-body connection in late 60s or early 70s. And when it came to light the uh, medical community didn't know what to do with the, this this bizarre thing of uh, a connection between mind and body. You have to remember the, the, the historical context of the separation had to do with 450 years or so ago with Descartes, and that there was a split when there was interest of integrating mind and spirit into medicine, there was great chastisement that don't you ever attempt to do that. So who what who was Descartes? I'm sorry. I'm glad you asked me to ask Google because I could not remember. I had no idea. So French-born and Dutch-lived mathematician and philosopher. He wrote about something called dualism, which is the mind and body being separate, made of separate types of matter. You know, the mental can exist outside of the body, but the body cannot think. So this philosophy kind of jives with a lot of religions that claim that immortal souls occupy this independent realm of existence, distinct from the rest of the physical world. Nowadays, we're like, nah, 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 not so much. But this whole situation gloriously has a Wikipedia page called The Mind-Body Problem, which sounds very dramatic and or like it would have something to do with the mind wanting to eat peanut butter pancakes, but the body is like, could you not? So the separation of dualism took place back then. We had medicine dealing just with the somatic or the body. And at that time, the all-powerful entity was the church, which dealt with the mind and the spirit. So medicine was told to keep its hands off and stay with the body and the mind and the spirit would stay with whatever they meant by mind at that time, would stay with the venue of the church. And not until probably uh, the mid-1900s um, did we start to reintroduce uh, the fact that there was a component that medicine wasn't dealing with, and that was uh, 
what do we do with the mind? Because the patient that got sick and had mental illness, as most uh, of us remember, was uh, thrown in the uh, room and the door was locked, uh, and we called them a sane asylum. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we hadn't, it was not part of the venue of medicine of knowing what to do with patients, either in helping to keep them well or in trying to treat them relative to the aspect of the mind. How did you get interested in studying humor and its effects on the brain? Because there's not many people out there doing that, I feel like. Yeah, uh, great question. Um, how did I get started with uh, looking at, at humor? I was always intrigued with the ancient wisdom of, um, ancient biblical wisdom, actually, of uh, a merry heart does good like a medicine uh, in the Old Testament of the Bible. So when Dr. Burke said merry heart, I thought he was talking about either Mary Hart from Entertainment Tonight or like Biblical Mary. I was all confused. So I looked it up and it's Mary as in cheerful, which makes way more sense. The whole quote is, a Mary Hart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Honestly, I'm now realizing that for centuries when old timey people needed to pick me up, like, you know, all of your seven children just perished of diphtheria or whatever, you'd crack open the Bible instead of looking on Instagram for those lifestyle accounts that sometimes post inspirational quotes by Beyonce. So whatever gets you pumped, man. The statement of a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit will dry the bone. Uh, nothing could be more modern in interpretation of the field of psychoneuroimmunology than that than that that uh, statement, but I was intrigued with the positive aspect, knowing that the there was this communication between brain uh, neuroendocrine hormones and the immune system, uh, what was going on relative to uh, positive behaviors of keeping one well, of, uh, of staying away from disease. So uh, I, I, I got really interested from those perspectives. What is a laugh? What is happening in the brain and the body? Uh, A laugh is the physical expression of something that triggers the brain to say that this is really funny enough to provide some sort of overt uh, expulsion of air. I laughed. Why did I just laugh? Maybe because I didn't expect such a technical answer? But what happened physically to my face and my lungs? So a researcher named Robert Provine found that 15 muscles in your face contract and your respiratory system gets jacked up by your epiglottis, which is that throat flappy thing, half closing your air passage. So your air intake occurs irregularly and it makes you gasp. (gasps) But not everyone who enjoys humor L's OL. Or in some cases, with some individuals, not an expulsion of air or uh, a a laugh or sound that uh, one hears from the other person. We found the latter out to be true when we were doing some early pilot studies and one of our subjects was a, happened to be a pathologist, Uh, uh, not targeting pathologist, but I'm just saying this was a pathologist that was somewhat passive and not overt. And he, uh, uh, we hooked him up with a needle in the arm and we said, now here, watch this humor video that you like and laugh. (laughs) So we uh, took blood from him uh, every 15 minutes uh, through an hour's period of time to see what was happening with some of his stress hormones. And we thought we had really just blown the experiment because all we got out of him were snickers and a little giggle, but nothing that would be considered a laugh. And we thought this was just a waste of time. What was he watching? Uh, he was watching a Abbott and Costello video. Okay. D- video. We asked him how he enjoyed. Did, did this was this funny or did you enjoy? Oh, he thought it was a scream, although there was no overt evidence of that. So one doesn't have to be falling on the floor laughing, if you please, as we typically will think, in fits of laughter. Uh, some, uh, yet the, uh, the hormone response, that is the decrease in the detrimental stress hormones, was just as significant as one who was laughing overtly or out loud. So uh, we learned a lot by uh, 
what laughter is or isn't. And what triggers a laugh? Is it something that is surprising? Is it something that uh, is ironic? Like, what? why typically do we laugh? Uh, there, gosh, yeah, it's a question I can't answer. Uh, <laughs> there are a number of different theories about uh, laughter or what is humorous that causes one to laugh. They say most laughter isn't about humor necessarily. It's about relationships between people, which I think is really interesting. One theory is called the relief theory. And Freud said that laughter releases tension and something called psychic energy, which may be one reason why it's seen as healing or why laughter can be used as a coping mechanism when someone is upset or angry or sad. And this happens to my sister. I, I, I've never seen anyone else have this happen to you so much, but in times when she's been really shocked or scared, she gets the giggles. It boggles us all. And even to her, she's like, I can't, I don't know why I'm laughing. Apparently, it's a way of releasing tension. So another theory is that humans are just biologically wired to laugh as communal relief once danger passes. This was so interesting to me. So a joke creates this inconsistency. And if we can figure out the riddle, this brain riddle, and realize that the surprise isn't dangerous, we laugh because we're relieved. So we have to get a little bit scared, and then we go, okay, never mind, it's fine. So in general, something is funny when we expect one thing, and then the punchline causes us to abruptly shift our understanding of the whole situation. And then we snort and hiccup and expel air or fart or whatever. Okay, but what makes us R-O-T-F-M-L laughing our on the ground one? The best definition that I think we, that I have to date would be uh, that there, we stumble on an incongruity of what is expected and what we stumble into. So it's that incongruity of what you are anticipating is going to be uh, that does not occur that causes you to trip on yourself, so to speak, mentally, and as a consequence, uh, you laugh. Beyond that, I still don't know how we can describe it any better. Do you laugh a lot in your daily life? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I, I probably don't overtly laugh a lot because I'm one of the uh, indicators of who Dr. Lee Burke is, is that he's the guy that's serious about laughter. <laughs> And, and in a, essentially, that's true. But I enjoy humor just incessantly. I, I, I grab it as much as I can. Um, and uh, uh, I will sit and watch uh, humor uh, on places like YouTube constantly. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. And, and that's done intentionally because um, now, now I'm going to step a little bit into the whole world of lifestyle medicine where uh, I firmly believe that one needs to get off the merry-go-round periodically because you want to break the cycle of the distress hormones, uh, which uh, as we proceed through our daily life, uh, we exacerbate or ramp up the distress response, as which is detrimental both uh, uh, immunologically. I gotta ask, what YouTube videos? Uh, I watch a lot of uh, Carol Burnett show. So there's a pair of comedic actors from the Carol Burnett show that he really loves. Tim Conway and Harvey Corman. I looked it up. They do a dental scene, going to do an extraction uh, on uh, his colleague on the show, and it's uh, probably one of the funniest videos I've ever seen. <laughs> Conway and Corman performed this legendary sketch. It involves a very bad dentist. And one of them, Corman, could not control his laughter during shooting the scene. And apparently, at one point, he had a little bit of an accident and he wet himself. But it's that legendary a comedy scene. Okay. Oh, doctor, please, please get this, get this tooth out of my yeah. mouth right. now. Well, okay. ah, ah. Let's see now. If we're going to pull her out, we'll have to have those pulley things. The pulleys and let's see pinchy things and the little picky things there pinchy picky pulley <laughs> dr burke says he'll put on videos like this in the middle of the day if he needs like a little boost you know for you it might mean falling down a rabbit hole of twitter memes or researching a, you know a pig getting a massage from a cat which if you have a chance to you should you should look that one up so stressful day you fired up 
Oh, uh, I I watch uh, several times in the day. I'll just stop and just turn something on. Was there a moment in your career where you realized you wanted to take a turn and study the effects of laughter on the immune system? Was there a moment where you thought, aha, I'm going to be the guy that does this? Uh, the way that came about of uh, deciding to take a look at laughter was uh, more by accident than by design. I think Albert Einstein said uh, uh, if we had all the answers, we wouldn't call it research. Or if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research. So in 1988, Dr. Burke was researching exercise, and I hope it was like gnarly, leotard-clad, jazzercise stuff, and the effects of that on the brain. And he, they were finding a correlation with laughter. And indeed, that's, that is the case. We were playing around with uh, laughter because we found prior to that that uh, moderate exercise could literally... Uh, enhance the production of something called beta endorphin. And uh, we would put individuals on treadmills and put it, what we call IV angiocatheters in their anacubital vein. That's the vein that you have your blood drawn. We saw that indeed endorphins would increase uh, differently in individuals that were uh, physically fit conditioned versus those that were not. And uh, that was uh, sort of a historic finding at that time. But what intrigued me was that people were saying, at least one individual by the name of Norman Cousins, was saying that um, he would laugh and get pain-free sleep from watching his uh, Laurel and Hardy videos or movies at that time, because this was a gentleman who had a disease called angulosing spondylitis, this autoimmune disease. So that's a type of arthritis that can cause wicked back pain. And Norman Cousins, was he was a writer, a journalist, he was a world peace activist, and he'd get these massive bouts of pain. And he'd watch Laurel and Hardy via projector. This was like in the 70s before VCRs, which were these things that were like YouTube, but they weighed 50 pounds. Side note, Laurel and Hardy was a comedy duo from the 1930s, so that's kind of the equivalent of people now like watching Carol Burnett videos or your grandchildren watching Tim and Eric in a space capsule, which we will definitely have in 40 years. Anyway, Norman Cousins, cool dude, in a lot of pain, watching old comedies. He was able to sleep after laughing for about 20 minutes or 30 minutes at a time and sleep for about three to four hours without any pain. Uh, so that was a trigger that I, I wonder what was happening with the stress hormones, and that's when we started pursuing the studies of looking at what uh, stress hormones were affected, or the term that we use is modulated uh, as a result of uh, watching and enjoying mirthful laughter, mm -hmm. humor videos. And uh, when we started that journey, somehow the word got out that we were then contacted by CBS 60 Minutes. Uh, uh, who wanted to come and video what we were doing. And my first responses were, no, thank you, because that was a terrifying endeavor to invite CBS 60 Minutes to come in the door. So 60 Minutes comes, and the interview goes well. And in short, people are like, what? Hey. So as a result of that scenario, uh, we decided that this was serious business, and uh, we started to pursue it. So then Norman Cousins... Laurel and Hardy Watcher with a back pain hits up Dr. Burke for a hangout. And Dr. Burke is like, yo, come to my lab. Let's chat. Norman's like, how can we get more serious about this research on laughter? Dr. Burke is like, well, research costs money, unfortunately. So, you know, bummer, dude. And he said, how much? Well, I've never been asked the question of how much money I wanted to do <laughs> research. So that, uh, that caught me off guard. And I thought, well, if I ask too much, I'll sound foolish. And if I ask too little, I'll sound <laughs> foolish. So, so I, I basically gave him a sum of money. And uh, without question, the next words in his mouth were, out of his mouth were, uh, who would I write the check to? Dun, dun, dun. And that was, the, that was our beginning. Wow. So why does laughing help? Okay. Well, laughter can help lower what are called detrimental stress hormones, like cortisol and adrenaline. That does a few things. 
So if we release cortisol uh, on a chronic basis, we will suppress our immune systems. So we are immune compromised, that's the word. So that's the detrimental effect of chronic stress, one of the mechanisms. So, um, so th through 1989, we indeed stumbled uh, on the, the study, not stumbled, but we produced a study of medical students showing that we could lower detrimental stress hormones while watching a uh, video, a humor video, uh, and uh, it was very real. And then through the 1990s, we continued the journey uh, pre uh, presenting different aspects of the immune system that were modulated, changed, or affected. And the uh, key finding at the end of the 1900s was that we published the culmination paper, included most all of the data in that paper um, in, I think, the year 2001. Uh, as a consequence, one of the things that Norman Cousins was in, always intrigued and wanted to say was the fact that laughter could benefit the immune system by increasing natural killer cell activity. Now, natural killer cells are immune cells that affect the immune system in that they go after virally infected cells and they go after specific cancer cells. Mm. Very, very real. Actually, we can prognostically in women who have breast cancer, there's a type of, a, in laboratory medicine, a type of a, a testing for natural killer cell activity. And um, uh, it uh, showed uh, that it was uh, very effective in increasing natural killer cells to kill the uh, cancer cells. Uh, not that it's panaceic, uh, but it's, again, part of the totality of lifestyle uh, lifestyle medicine and choices that we make in uh, whether we want to be happy or not happy makes a difference. Is and that a choice, do you think? Do you, in your research, how much have you discovered yourself that happiness is a choice or behaviors that increase happiness, uh, rather, are an important choice to make? I cannot, happiness, to be happy, one has to pursue happiness. It sounds strange and sounds maybe selfish, but it's not. Can I become physically fit by sitting in this chair wishing to become physically fit? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I'm no doctor. Okay. No, you really can't. So there is a criteria of certain behavior that you have to do. I have to get up off the chair and I have to move and I have to exercise uh, to become physically fit. Have so much aerobic exercise, so much anaerobic exercise to become physically, physically fit or cardiovascularly fit. Well, the same thing is, I think, very true relative to being happy. Uh, one has to pursue uh, those things in life within, obviously, rationale and reason that makes them happy. Uh, one of the things that we're finding out that makes us happy is when we make others happy. So there is a whole science of happiness. Berkeley uh, has an incredible program called The Greater Good. And oh, yes, I covered them on another episode. For more on this, you can listen to the episode titled Gratefulology is Not a Real Word, in which a very grumpy Allie Ward tries to science herself into a better mood. What is that? What do you need in your brain to be happy? Do you need certain kind of beta it, waves, gamma waves? It, it's, it's, it's a change or modulation in the type of brain frequency. Um, the, it would be somewhat similar to what one wishes to attain when one reaches uh, a true state of meditation. Mindfulness meditation and long-term meditation are now well recognized to be associated with a frequency that heretofore was not recognized as even existing, and that's called the gamma frequency. And the gamma frequency is a frequency that ranges in the range of 25 to 30 to 40 hertz. It's like a radio dial. Let's talk brainwaves real quick. This is crazy and cool. If you're into brains, which we, I think we all are, we have them. Isn't it weird that right now your brain is thinking about your brain? And my brain is thinking about your brain, thinking about your brain. And now your brain is thinking about my brain, thinking about your brain, thinking about your brain. Okay, so brain waves are essentially these synchronized electrical pulses 
They're from these masses of neurons that are all chatting with each other. And these waves come in different frequencies, depending on your level of chill. Gonna run through them super quick. Delta is a deep sleep wave. It's like deep, dreamless sleep. Uh, transcendental meditators uh, get into delta waves. Awareness is pretty detached. Theta waves, light meditation, sleeping waves. These are present during light sleep, including REM sleep, which is also known as Dreamtown. Alpha waves is a deep relaxation wave. So usually your eyes are closed when you're daydreaming or doing like casual light meditation. Beta waves are like your everyday awake consciousness. That's when you're alert, you're using logic, you're using your brain, you need these to function. But they can also cause a lot of stress and anxiety. Gamma is somewhat newly discovered and it's the fastest frequency. Scientists think gamma waves are associated with these like bursts of insight. Well, the benefit of the gamma frequency is that uh, indeed uh, uh, it is a frequency that in neuroscience we now associate with what we call uh, neural synchronization. Neural meaning nerves synchronizing or talking to each other. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a, a real effect of brain if the brain is talking to itself. And indeed, uh, that is the case with gamma frequency. The other intriguing aspects of gamma frequency as a result of the synchronization is that it's a frequency associated with the highest level for cognitive processing, for thinking, mm -hmm. for being functional. Well, uh, that's uh, associated with uh, the, the uh, complete opposite of a depressed state. But the reality uh, of uh, gamma frequency being extremely beneficial so we see the, the antithesis of depression relative to enhancing gamma frequency. Uh, now, there are other modalities that enhance gamma frequency. It's not just uh, laughter. Um, it, uh, it is enhanced, as we have uh, studied and our research shows, uh, it's enhanced with uh, high antioxidant uh, food, uh, food uh, consumption, that is, foods that are extremely high in antioxidants, and I'm talking in the range of maybe 53, 56,000 micromoles per 100 grams. Wait, what? Uh, that may, may, not, may not mean much for your, your listeners, mm -hmm. but the reality is that uh, it's in the range of the top uh, uh, foods or spices that exist in the world that, as we know today. So apparently the antioxidants are doing something in brain that causes the induction of the gamma frequency. In. Another substance, super high in antioxidants, 70% cacao or greater chocolate. This can elicit the induction of gamma frequency in the brain. So eat it, whatever. You're good. Doctor's orders. We also have seen it with a high antioxidant concentration of uh, various nuts, um, walnuts, pecans, pistachios. So this is uh, this is essentially brand new re <laughs> research. This bodes well for the turtle industry, chocolate nut turtles. So mirthful laughter, nuts, chocolate, exercise, all good things for your brain and your immune system. So... Hop on a treadmill, eat a turtle, not a real turtle, a chocolate turtle, and watch comedians wet themselves. So we are now starting to call all of these kinds of lifestyle behaviors a term called uh, eustress metaphors. Eustress, E-U, for the, uh, the two letters, E-U, come from the Greek, which mean good, mm -hmm. stressed. Good stress, eustress. It's not a word that I coined. It's a word coined by Dr. Hans Selye, who is the father of the stress adaptation syndrome and discovered the detrimental effects of stress. But before he died, he realized that all stress was not bad, that there was something called good stress, and he termed it eustress. Dr. Hans Selye, by the way, was a badass. He was a Hungarian who spoke eight languages. He would wake up at 5 a.m. every morning to swim, and then he'd ride his bike six miles to work, and he kind of discovered stress. He would see patients who just looked like garbage, and a lot of them were under a lot of strain. 
So, in fact, when he coined the word, he's like, uh, let's call it stress. He did English wasn't his first language, and he said he regrets using stress and wishes he would have called it strain because that's more accurate. But now we say stress in like all the languages, pretty much. Oh, except in Chinese, where I found out it's called crisis, and it's depicted by two characters put together, one for danger and one for opportunity, which is so painfully accurate. Have you ever heard uh, the theory or the just? the general assumption that a lot of comedians are depressed people. What do you think about that? Is that self-medication then? A lot of them lived very long lives. Dr. Burke pointed out that George Burns lived to be pretty old. He died at the age of 100. And I looked up George Burns plus depression, but all the articles capitalized the D in depression. And then I realized they meant, oh, as in the Great Depression, because George Burns was born in the 1800s, y'all, before comedians free-based crack cocaine and set themselves on fire with high-proof rum. And I'm looking at you, Richard Pryor. I did a little more digging, and this study was published in a cardiac journal in 2016, and it examined the lives of almost 500 people, including 200 stand-up comedians, around 100 comedy actors, around 200 dramatic actors. So the average age of death for stand-up comedians was shorter at around 67 years. The dramatic actors lived three or four years longer. So they think that stand-up comedians, well, first off, they're more likely to die from car accidents, from suicide, and from drug misadventures. Also, stand-ups tend to pull late nights, you know, in venues. They do a lot of travel. But also, the majority of comedians tend to have a few personality traits in common. They have higher than average to very well above average intelligence. And some studies have linked high intelligence to depression. You win some, you lose some. But humor can also decrease the social distance between people. And Patton Oswalt once said in a CNN documentary that a lot of comedians are people that are very introverted, very shy, very sensitive to humiliation. So the only way to combat that is to go to the one place where you're stripped bare, in his words. And there's a British comedy researcher, Gordon Claridge, who said that comedy may partly be a form of self-medication. So it's important to note, too, that those who make comedy may not always be the same people who benefit from it. You know, watching a stand-up special at home is decidedly less stressful on your body and your mind than, like, working on new material for two years or selling a stand-up special, recording it in front of a thousand people, and then hoping it rates well so you get another one. Again, I'm not a doctor, but watching comedy, much less stressful than making it. So comedians sometimes... They get a little wild. Mm -hmm. uh, but much like most of us who work for a living, mm -hmm. uh, get stressed from our work <laughs> and uh, have consequences as a result of the work. And by the way, that's the reason you get off the merry-go-round periodically and reset your set point mm -hmm. with the use of laughter or music that moves your soul or some form of appropriate meditation. Just watch the crystals don't hit your head. <laughs> what about laughing yoga? Does that count as mirthful laughter? Because mirthful laughter is organic laughter, right? Not psychotic laughter. There's a controversy of whether laughter yoga is the same as intrinsic-oriented. Uh, um, laughter yoga is, I, I don't believe, is the same thing as an intrinsic experience. Are you ready for some questions from listeners? Sure. Yeah, there's so many, but I'm going to go through the best ones quickly. <laughs> we won't ask all of them. There's no way I can ask you all of them. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AliWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work in those fields and and this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks, sponsors. 
Allergies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Claritin. So luckily, for those that live with the symptoms of allergies, you can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This is designed for serious allergy sufferers, and Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. It's this double action combination of prescription, strength allergy medicine, and the best decongestant available. Relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Just boom, down the hatch. You can get non-drowsy relief of allergy symptoms. And with Claritin D, you can still make the most of your day without compromise or looking like you've been crying. Are you ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Your pod mother Jarrett, terrible allergies, and was recently shooting an indie movie that was filming in a house that had seven cats. Guess who's allergic to cats? Him. So yeah, we always have Claritin in like each of our cars. Essentially, Claritin D is third in our relationship. It's fast and powerful relief. It's just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. (gasps) 
that's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Okay, your questions. Okay, so these uh, first questions come from my my Patreon uh, subscribers. So Priscilla wants to know, does a smile have the same effect on the body as a laugh? There, There is some evidence that a smile elicits a similar response uh, because for some individuals, a smile uh, is equivalent to a laugh because they're not as overt as others are. Um, there, there is a benefit, uh, just a little additive here, there is a benefit of seeing somebody smile because we have uh, in-brain what we call uh, mare neurons, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, mare neurons is where we, uh, we, we uh, replicate that which we see. And uh, if that sounds strange, it's not so strange in the sense that uh, as we are walking down a hallway and we see somebody laughing at the other end of the hallway as a group of people, we have no idea what the context is, yet we will start to smile uh, in response. So a smile does, uh, by virtue of conditioning, uh, or creatures of conditioning, uh, indeed uh, can elicit a uh, beneficial response. Rachel wants to know, why do some people, me, she says, uh, cry when we laugh really hard. I think it's just, <laughs> it's just part of the package. <laughs> yeah, it just, uh, you are just overflow. Uh, tears will roll down the eyes. <laughs> I mean, one can get into uh, whether it's a sense of the eyes cleansing themselves. If it's, if it's funny, it's good. Enjoy it. <laughs> cry, whatever. <laughs> That's a great motto. Uh, Katie wants to know, is laughing something that's developed in us biologically, or is the origin social? She says, it seems like we can't control it, but she doesn't know what the evolutionary advantage of laughter would be. Great question. Um, right? Way to go, Katie Anderson. We are programmed to laugh. We are born to laugh. Um, have you ever seen a three to four month old child giggle and smile and laugh? Yeah, they're, they're giggle. They're yeah, meaty giggle sure. boxes. Where did they learn that? Innate. So it's innate. Sure. Yet they can't speak one word. Mm-hmm. So the brain is programmed to, to, to uh, have laughter, to utilize laughter, yet we don't do that in our society. In fact, when we go to school, I grew up in Canada, and I spent the first 18 years of my life in, in Canadian school, the British system, if you please. And uh, uh, education was serious, and teacher told me so. Don't 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 fool around in class. And she would waggle her finger at me. Uh, get serious. Life is serious. So we are we socialize ourselves uh, um, by removing that that uh, that reality of being programmed or innately born with 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 the utilization of laughter after all laughter is a good medicine mm-hmm. uh, we're told then to get serious about life and we do and we pay the price for it laughter isn't something that's conditioned rather um the lack of laughter is conditioned more so uh, yeah we're 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 deconditioned if, uh, to remove laughter as part of being human. Mm-hmm. Um, yet we go home in the evenings and look for the best sitcom that we can, mm-hmm. which is a whole another discussion of the sitcoms that are on television today versus do they really represent um, uh, appropriate humor? Right. What is appropriate humor? Uh, humor. Well, it's it's. Uh, Appropriate humor is when we can laugh at ourselves without mockery. And today's humor is um, your mother looks like a pig. Mm. Uh, so we are causing a sense of detriment and derogatory uh, meaning to the sense of humor. So I'm supposed to find humor that uh, is demeaning and derogatory as being now the new uh, definition of humor. Uh, the question is, it, it, not just the overt observation, but what is then the neuroscience or the psychological 
translation of that demean, demeaning or derogatory uh, pursuit. Right. Does it cause as much eustress as humor that doesn't rely on another's uh, kind of misery or, or taking down a peg? Well, is that is that degradation uh, now uh, the new norm? So the question is, if uh, if I'm laughing at uh, somebody telling me a joke about uh, my mother uh, looking like a pig and, and they find it absolutely hilarious, that uh, doesn't fit with my biology. So remember, laughter follows this perceived threat found to be benign. So if an insult comic is too cutting, that sense of like, oh, never mind, everything is fine, starts to be kind of threatened. And I couldn't find a lot of research on this. I did a lot of looking, but maybe if the jokes are at another's expense, the threat isn't imminent to you. So the laughter comes from having been spared the insult comics attention. I don't know. I myself get super uncomfy with insult comics and roasts because like human beings are so fragile and it just bums me out. But the late Dr. William F. Fry, who was a Stanford psychiatrist, he was kind of the founder of modern gelatology, explained that laughing when someone trips, however, happens when we know that the situation didn't ultimately harm them. So watching someone stumble like over a pigeon and drop an ice cream might be funny because the ice cream was the only thing that was really harmed, you know. But if the person died in the fall and also killed the pigeon, it would be kind of outside the play frame and not funny. So we'd empathize with the harm and the threat could no longer be benign unless you were a dick and you didn't care or like really invested in the ice cream and that bummed you out. Thomas Pico asked, why do we laugh when we watch slapstick? Why is watching someone slip on a banana peel funny? Like laughing at the Three Stooges causing each other pain. Is that funny? Should that be funny? Well, I'm not sure that the pain is the issue of what's being funny. What What is funny is the fact that we know that we have periodically slipped on something mm. and we find that identity they just take it to the extreme that we can identify with when it's directed at the human experience or back at ourselves or a surprise factor it has different benefits neurologically sure side note my own question in in a in a current current climate that seems high stress lately do you feel that people are doing enough to kind of combat stress of the news cycle? Like, given that our news cycle is now 24 hours, we're constantly getting alerts on our phone and things like that. Um, do you think people are watching enough humor? Do you think it's a good balance these days? No, I think, uh, I, I don't think we, we're watching enough that which count, counter uh, um, counters the detriment of, um, uh, do we see society uh, improving in, in its uh, interaction with each other as a result of the enhancement of the uh, technology and the communication with the media and the news as it is today? Right. Not so much, perhaps. Here's a theory. It seems to be a, a depressing time lately, so let's laugh more. Hmm? What then is what, what then is our... our uh, or stopgap, or how do we counter that? Um, it's at a molecular level. And I it, imagine, yeah, that we don't. I think we we take stress for granted so much. Just it's something that we deal with. It's something that happens, and it's something that very much is in the mind. But it's not in the mind when you consider uh, immunology and autoimmunity as well as affected. Every a lot. thought process, every thought process has biotranslation. There's mm -hmm. no thought that either we create in ourselves or it comes into us that doesn't have biological translation. The question is, then what is the consequence of that translation? It's like a fork in the road. Do you want it to benefit you, or do you want? is it going to be detrimental? So it depends what you're watching, mm. listening to, and what you're doing. I have a few more questions. These are from people in sure. the Facebook group. This question came up probably no fewer than six times. Why do we laugh when someone tickles us? And why can't we tickle ourselves? We haven't studied that yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next the next study. Yeah, I, I uh, don't have an, I, I don't have an answer for, for for that. 
So this may not be Dr. Burke's wheelhouse, but some evolutionary biologists think that we laugh when we're tickled because there's a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, and that tells us to laugh when we experience a light touch. It's the same part of us that says, hey, a painful sensation is coming. So when someone goes for like a tickle zone, like your pits or your feet or your throat, they could be killing you with their hands. And laughing could have evolved as a defense mechanism to show that we're submissive to an aggressor and make the tension go away. You laugh at people's jokes and maybe they'll like you, they won't get peeved. And you perhaps giggle at tickles, maybe your airways won't get crushed by someone. So thanks, human brain. Now, do other species of animals laugh? McKenna asked that. Well, they claim certainly uh, the chimpanzees uh, uh, have a form of laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I even think uh, there is one investigator who uh, studies from the neuroscience standpoint that uh, rats have a form of laughter and they can monitor the frequency with uh, with and he's he's calling that laughter okay go get your eyes on this national geographic video about rat tickling so here's the sound a rat makes if you tickle its back the video goes on to note that the rats freaking love it they seek out this gloved hand of the researcher for more tickling they chase the hand around it's kind of like a little tiny sewer dog with a long snaky tail if you've ever seen a dog that's panting somewhat and the tail's wagging, they claim that to be some form of laughter. That would make sense given our social relationship mm-hmm. with them as a yeah. as a means of bonding or communicating. Yeah, yeah. but uh, to, to answer that qu- question more specifically, one would have to look at what is brain doing. Mm. Okay, uh, and is it similar in response in their brain? I think are most animals... Have some most have some sense of uh, of capability of uh, of laughter, if you please, or want to call it laughter, being associated with happiness or joyfulness. I have one one last question, but it's a two parter. Um, what is the hardest thing about your job, or your least favorite thing about your job? It could be anything from like the vending machines uh, in the cafeteria to research funding to. Uh, having to iron shirts to the mysteries of gamma waves. I always am curious about if what the most challenging thing is. Of the, of, of the job or mm-hmm. of life? Um, either. I would say the, the <laughs> most challenging thing about, about being a psychoneuroimmunologist slash, slash gelatologist. And not having a 25th hour. <laughs> not enough time. What would you do in that one hour? Uh, Albert Einstein said this real well on his deathbed. He said, I've only started. <gasps> so that you can't do it all. Yeah. That's the hardest yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I get asked by students. Uh, not asked the students. Dr. Burke, you know so much. You know, And, and it's, it's the most humbling statement in the sense my response is, uh, no, I really don't. I thought I knew a lot yesterday, and I know, but I know less today. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about what you do? Everything. Everything. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty lucky. I, I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I'm lucky to be. Um, don't ever anybody in your audience don't ever think because you're so diverse that it doesn't pay off. It certainly does. Because you get to, you get to see and think of different perspectives that you would never ever have the opportunity to do so. And I started, you know, with this degree and this degree in psychology and sociology and on and on. It was so diverse. Uh, it all came together when I stumbled into psychoneuroimmunology and realized how everything was intertwined, mm-hmm. interwoven interrelated and um, and the reality of the consequence of uh, any one thought either going for uh, for better benefit or detriment is very real and that's by choice so you are just a, a new hero of mine so to learn more about dr burke and his work 
the work of Burke, go to his website at dr-lee-burke.com. And I post links and photos at alleyward.com slash ologies for all the episodes. Um, you can follow ologies on Instagram or Twitter. It's just at ologies. Uh, you can join all the lovely ologites at the ologies podcast Facebook group great group of people and they always have really interesting links and insights into the episodes um you can follow me at ally ward ally with one l on twitter or instagram or and or become a patron at patreon.com slash ologies i tell you what topics are coming up next you get kind of some sneak information there and then your questions get asked to the ologists. So you can join for as little as 25 cents an episode. Thank you to Stephen Ray Morris for all the edits on this episode and to Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for their amazing work they do at ologiesmerch.com. I have tons of stuff up there that they have helped design and helped me manage. So head to that site. You can browse the goods. Um, also, if you're near Portland on February 22nd and you want to meet the thanatologist from a few episodes back, Cole and Perry, she's so great. Um, the link for a special dinner with her in Portland on the 22nd of February is in the show notes. So you can click on that. Uh, Nick Thorburn did the music for Ologies. And if you like it, you should check out his band Island or his solo work, Nick Diamond. Um, he also did the serial theme music. Isn't that crazy? He's great. Um, and per usual, I always tell a secret at the end of the episode. And I, you know, I thought it would be interesting to hear what the hardest you guys have ever laughed. So I don't know, tag it gelatology and, and let me know. But I want to hear what the hardest you guys have ever laughed is. I'll tell you mine. Um, I think the hardest I've ever laughed was watching this video posted to YouTube by a user called Food Plot. It's about a dog named Denver who eats cat treats. I just did a whole thing where I thought I'd watch it while recording, but it was too much shrill cackling, so I just deleted it. But it's anyway, it's really good. Okay. Ask smart people dumb questions. You know the drill. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology. Homeology. Cryptozoology. Lithology. Nanotechnology. Meteorology. Meteorology. 